Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. Uh, let's, let's first establish the difference between communication and information. The computer, the online connections are an excellent form of information, passing on information. The information highway is great. But for communication, not so great. You can't really communicate on online. Those who have tried, who thought they were communicating, it's it's been disappointing, sometimes even a disaster. So the question is a very good question. How do we communicate uh, from a distance? Is it even possible? What did our ancestors do when they had this problem? But now we have this computer. Who, where are we supposed to look? Who had this experience that we can uh, emulate? So it's interesting that when the Alta Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, published the Tanya, they, they had a similar dilemma. People used to come to the Rebbe for advice. They would travel great distances. And back in those days, uh, the roads were muddy, it was cold. It was a difficult trip. But people were so desperate for inspiration, for knowledge, to know how to serve God properly, that they would make these trips. And there were so many people coming to the Rebbe for advice that it became almost impo- physically impossible. So the Rebbe gave out pamphlets. He published pamphlets, copied, of course, by hand, answers to the most common questions that people had. Eventually, those pamphlets were gathered into a book form, and that became the Tanya. So the Alter Rebbe writes in the introduction that when he mentioned the idea of giving the advice in writing so that people don't have to make that difficult trip and don't have to come to him for the advice, many Hasidim objected. It's not the same. Reading advice from a book is not the same as a personal visit where you know that the Rebbe is talking to you, addressing your particular individual problem. How can a book that is written for the public, how can it replace a personal visit? We're asking a very similar question. How can the computer replace a visit from grandpa 
being a grandfather that's on my mind. So it's a similar question. The Rebbe's answer is also very interesting. The Rebbe's answer is our communication has already begun. You've already been here, you visited me, we talked, you shared your innermost thoughts and feelings, and I really know you well. So from now on, we can communicate in writing, and the answers to your questions will be in this, in this safer, in this book, because I know intimately who I'm talking to. So that's a partial answer to our problem as well. <clears throat> the people you're intimately familiar with, you can kind of extend and expand on that communication using the computer. Somebody you don't yet know intimately, you cannot create a new relationship online. So at least for those people who we know well, we can use the computer and it even works as communication, not only information. Other than that, we use the computer to share information. And this information can be extremely valuable. So it is not an exaggeration to say that Zoom has become the modern yeshiva. Every rabbi, every shliach, everyone who has anything to say is teaching in this great yeshiva. The yeshiva of Zoom. And the information can be very inspiring. The information can be very enlightening. The information can be life-saving because the information is valuable and true and holy. So, in the relationships that are close, the people you know well, where an intimate relationship has already been established, even the computer can uh, substitute and extend that communication between people who don't have that kind of relationship. The computer is a great information highway, but you got to give the right information. Unfortunately, like everything else, there's the upside and there's the downside. In this communication uh, information highway, there's a lot of bad information. Unholy, unsavory, unnecessary. So you have to filter what information you want from your, from your computer from your, from your um, online uh, information source. But if the information is good, it's very good.
Now here's the danger. If we're not aware and we don't really appreciate the difference between communicating and sharing information, there are many people who mistakenly use the computer, the online uh, connections as a substitute communication tool. Yep, you hear people falling in love online, falling in love with someone they never saw, they never knew, they never met, just online. That is so dangerous. And no matter how many stories you hear about a successful relationship, it is the exception. We can't, we can't make a substitute for intimacy. There is no substitute for closeness. And that can't happen on the, on, online. Particularly children who find friends online. They actually call it that. Friend me. This is not healthy. This is not good. Like me. <laughs> like me online. These are not real emotions. And false emotions are never healthy, never good, never useful. So we have to ed educate our children and inform them of the difference between what communication means and what information means. So let's talk about that for a moment. What is communication? Human language, the ability to speak in the human being is communication. What's unique about human speech compared to the speech of animals is that in the human being, our words, our language, communicate something about the speaker. An animal can communicate danger. An animal can communicate victory, fear, Nothing personal. In other words, it's just information. Communication means communicating something about yourself. Passing something of yourself to your listener. And that's why false communication Lying, deceiving, misleading is such a terrible sin. Putting a stumbling block before the blind by giving false information, false direction, so on. Real communication means something about me has been revealed. So communication is revelation not just a sharing 
of knowledge or of information. In other words, communication must be personal. If all I tell you is that two and two is four, I haven't communicated. I've shared information. I've told you a fact. I haven't revealed anything about myself. <laughs> if I tell you that two and two is five, I've revealed something about myself. <laughs> that I'm really not good at math. But even that's not personal. Another thing about communication, and this is also a gift of speech, I reveal something about myself, but I reveal it in such a way that it reaches you and touches you. In other words, I'm communicating about myself, but I'm communicating it to you. Personal. That's why I have to know who I'm talking to. I have to know which language you understand best. Because if I don't speak in your language, I may be revealing something about myself, but I'm not revealing it to you. And even after I know which language you speak, that's not enough. I need to know how you think. How do I express myself in a way, yes, in your language, but also in a way that you can appreciate, that makes sense to you? If I speak in riddles, even though it's your language, I'm not communicating. If I say something too personal, you can't hear this. It doesn't make you comfortable. I'm revealing something about myself, but not to you. So to speak properly, effectively, and to communicate, I need to be able to express who I am, something about myself, and I need to be able to empathize with your way of thinking and your way of, of speaking so that I can say it in a way that you can, be, you can appreciate it and maybe even be inspired. That's the gift of speech. And it's not just great speakers who can reveal something of themselves that moves a crowd, that inspires a large group. We do this all the time in our lives. Even in little ways. To know the right thing to say to a child when they're upset or frightened. To, to hit the right note when you're consoling someone who has its own virtue. If it's valid information, if it's meaningful information, if it's true information, then it is equally relevant to every person that is listening. Communication can't be that broad.
it has to be more specifically designed for the listener. And not all listeners are alike. So if you're trying to inspire and communicate, you will reach some people, you will not reach all the people. But good information, everyone can walk away enlightened because that's what information does. Information enlightens. Yeah, people can get excited about the information you're sharing, but that's not you inspiring them. It's the idea. The information inspires them. So there's a, a familiar expression that Hasidim use a lot. Words that come from the heart will enter the heart of the listener and will have a, the proper effect. Words that come from the heart will enter the heart. In other words, if I'm really communicating something about myself, something meaningful to me, it will find the right response in you. Because the heart responds to the heart. That's communication. When it comes to information, that restriction or that uh, qualification doesn't apply. If I'm giving you good information, if I'm telling you what is true and valid and important, it doesn't matter whether it's coming from my heart. I don't even have to be sincere. And I don't really have to care <laughs> whether you're listening or not. Because what I'm saying is valid in its own right. So it really doesn't matter who's saying it. And for that, we have another famous expression. Kabel Accept the truth regardless of who's telling it to you. The person telling you this information might be a hypocrite. He might not himself believe in what he's saying. But if he's saying the truth, why would you care? What difference does it make? The person's insincerity does not invalidate the truth and the importance and, and, and the logic of the information that he's sharing. In these days, when we are forced to use the computer as our language, we have to take advantage of the virtue of information, even though we can't use it so well for the virtues of communication. It is a great blessing. The ability to pass on information to such distant places I tell you there was a woman in Brooklyn about a year ago two years ago maybe she was from New Guinea from the jungles of New Guinea 
she was in Crown Heights attending the woman's yeshiva. How did that happen? The internet. Years ago, she went online and she heard many of the talks that I, that I put out online. She was fascinated. She encouraged her friends and an entire community of people in New Guinea made it a habit to go online to listen to rabbis teaching Torah. She became their Rebetzin. They would call her and say, I was listening, the rabbi said this, the rabbi said that, can you explain it? Eventually she decided that she must become a Jew. And she was in the process of converting when I met her. Now here's the point. All of the talks, all the, the, the broadcasts, the podcasts were not directed to her. This was not personal communication. I was not revealing anything about myself and I was not directing it to her. I didn't know she exists. I didn't know that they had computers in New Guinea, in the jungles of New Guinea. Didn't matter. Who I was and who I was talking to didn't matter. The information was good. And it inspired, it enlightened, it gave people direction, which is what is desperately needed these days. So this is the great virtue of the information highway. I would like to think that the good use of the internet far outweighs the bad. In general, good is more powerful than bad. Holy is more powerful than unholy, just in general. It must also be true online. The bad stuff online is so vacuous, so empty, it's so meaningless, it's so false, that although it causes damage, it can't compete with the positive effect of the good information. At least I'd like to think so. So the internet has become our friend. Not so long ago, I remember people panicking. People were frightened. The internet is going to destroy us. It's going to corrupt our children. It's going to destroy marriages. It's going to do terrible things.
It can. It has. But that's only one side of the story. <clears throat> the other side of the story is it has brought enlightenment, true enlightenment, to the entire globe. That is far more valuable, far more powerful than the corruption that it introduced. It's not like corruption didn't exist before. It's not like you can't be corrupt without your internet. But it was true that good information was simply not available without the internet. So we should consider it a blessing. There's another virtue. The fact that you can't really communicate online has inspired good communication among people who can communicate face to face. Members of the family. where communication is so essential. I don't mean communication skills. That's a different story. I remember there was a couple who were having problems in their marriage. So they went to this course to improve their communication skills. It was a disaster because all they communicated was their criticism and hatred of each other. Only now they communicated it better. So it's not the communication skill that is going to solve the problem. It's what it is you want to communicate. If what you want to communicate is positive, constructive, sensitive, sympathetic, you don't need skills. Everybody knows how to be nice. And if you want to communicate nasty stuff, then nobody should teach you skills of communication. Just turn you into a real effective monster. There, there are relationships that are suffering because of the... Uh, because of the virus, because of the lockdown, people stuck in the house with each other, it can be very irritating if things are not comfortable between them. But by and large, I hear much more good news than bad news. Couples who were not getting along, some even on the verge of, of divorce, because of the lockdown, everything changed. They suddenly saw another side of each other. They find themselves grateful to have each other. They're communicating. They didn't take a course in communication skills. They just have something nice to say, which they didn't have before. 
and they find a way to say it. <clears throat> so, the people you're spending time with, communicate. Communicate. Don't hide. Don't be distant. That's where real communication takes place. And that itself is another blessing. We weren't doing it very well before the lockdown. We were too scattered, too busy, too much out of the house. Took each other for granted. So if you remember when, when it was first decreed that we would be staying home, remember the panic? Locked in the house with, with the family? It's going to be a disaster. It's not. It's not. We've rediscovered communication because we were forced to. And it's good. It's very good. At the same time, you can go online and get information, valid, good, helpful information on any topic you want. You need to know how to make chalent for Shabbos. <laughs> Hundreds of sites will tell you how to make chalent. Hundreds of different types of chalent. What could be better? You want to know how to prepare gefilte fish? It's beautiful. The sad part is people who don't have anyone at home to communicate with because they live completely alone. Now, it's not like this became a problem because of lockdown. When there's nobody home, you feel alone, no matter how many friends you can go visit. So there's that famous Billy Joel song, The Piano Man. Where he says, you can share a drink called loneliness. And it's better than drinking alone. Which means there's loneliness and there is aloneness. Loneliness you can share. Two lonely people get together, they feel better. They've shared their loneliness. But what do you do with the feeling that you're all alone in the world? So after the party, when you come home, you find yourself still lonely? No, now you're alone. 
that can't be shared. It also can't be tolerated. A person who feels alone can't. It's intolerable. It's unhealthy, too painful. And this is where we need to have a relationship with our Creator. The real cure for the sense of aloneness is God. Because ultimately, it's the only relationship in which you are not alone and which will never end. Of course, when you're married, you're not alone. You have a spouse. But you don't know how long that's going to last. So it is a great relationship. And it's a great antidote to aloneness. But it's not forever. So while it's there, it's wonderful. When it's not there, it's terrible. But the connection with God will always be there. And it's always available at any time, even if many years have gone by and you've had no connection to God. We're going to enter the month of Elul, the month before Rosh Hashanah. Jewish tradition has always known that these are 30 days of preparation for the great day of Rosh Hashanah, followed by Yom Kippur. But there's something really beautiful about this month that Chabad teaches. How do you prepare for Rosh Hashanah? Traditionally, the assumption was uh, Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. Get your act together. (laughs) You want to come out on the right side of the judgment, right? So get your act together. Start behaving. Make nice. Be good. Um, Regret all your past mistakes and sins. Ask for forgiveness. Clean the slate. Because the day of judgment is coming, and that is Rosh Hashanah. Chabad adds another note, another flavor. On Rosh Hashanah, we're going to coronate God as our king. A king is not a dictator. There's another word in Hebrew for dictator. It's not melech. On Rosh Hashanah, we coronate God as our king. Because a king is someone you accept. You, uh, you, uh, you, you coronate your king because you want him to be your king. The king accepts 
because he wants to be your king. Your king. If he doesn't like you, he doesn't want to be your king. How do you prepare for this meeting where you're coronating the king and the king is accepting the, the position? What would constitute a preparation? So the Rebbe says, during the month of Elul, God is more available than the rest of the year. Like a king who doesn't wait for the people to come to the palace, he comes out to the field where the people are working. He's not wearing the crown. The crown doesn't leave the palace. He's not wearing his royal garments. That's only in the palace. At the same time, the people in the field are not dressed for the occasion either. They're not wearing their Shabbos best. They're wearing their work clothes. The king comes to the field and greets the people. What is the meaning of that? <clears throat> the king wants to encourage the people that on the day when everyone is invited to the palace, they too are invited. That's his message. You're invited to the palace. Why does he have to come out and tell us that? What motivates the king to do that? The king's awareness that the people out in the field would really love to come to the palace and be there at the coronation and participate in the coronation. They want to make him their king, but they don't feel adequate. They don't feel they deserve chutzpah. I'm going to go to the palace? Look at me. I'm not dressed properly. I don't know the language of the, the royal court. What do I do at the palace? I'm inadequate. Knowing that the people wish to come to the inauguration or to the coronation, that inspires the king. It moves him. And in response, he comes out to tell the people, thus for us as a preparation for Rosh Hashanah. What does it mean that God is more available? you're more easily inspired. You hear something, you're inspired. Had you heard exactly the same thing a month ago, you wouldn't have been so inspired. There is something in the air, something in the, in the cosmos during this month 
where God makes himself available, meaning it's easier to relate to him. It's easier to be moved by the thought of him because he's there telling you that you're invited, that he's thinking about you. And why is he thinking about you? Because he knows that in your heart of hearts, you want to be at the coronation. So your desire to be there inspires the king. The king then comes to the field to encourage you. And then together, we can meet in the palace for the coronation, which is Rosh Hashanah. So we have 30 days. The Rebbe once commented, it isn't possible that 30 days go by and any Jew in the world did not have an inspired moment. Even for the moment. But something moved him. bound to happen. And in fact, I'm hearing from people. The thought of Rosh Hashanah approaching, all of a sudden God is starting to make sense. It's partly the effect of the, of the lockdown. When you spend time with yourself, you're not running around, you're not shopping, you're not visiting, you're not, not taking a, a, a jet plane anywhere. You get to know yourself. You hear yourself thinking. You get to know yourself. And you're pleasantly surprised. Your, your intuitive uh, self, your in, instinct healthy instinct self is pretty good. There is a good positive side to you that you've been ignoring and neglecting. And it's so pleasant to find it, to hear it, to hear yourself. So without lectures and without fiery speeches, people are discovering their relationship with God. That is the best antidote for feeling alone. It's the most reliable, the most consistent, the most indestructible relationship. And if you felt, how can I have a relationship with God so that I am not alone in the world because he is with me. I'm not that religious. I'm not that holy. I'm not that noble. Well, God is going to come out to the field, to where you are, to where you think you're stuck. And he's going to let you know that you are invited. There's a seat at the table with your name on it, place card. And if you don't show up, God is going to miss you. 
That's pretty inspiring. But what about the fact that you're not really adequate? That's not your imagination. You haven't been very observant. You haven't been in a synagogue in years. Haven't really spoken or thought about God for a long time. It's a little hard to believe that God has a seat for you at his table. Why would he? Well, you don't know yourself and you don't know God. There's something between the two of you that is so real and so natural you don't even notice. It's like, you know, you don't notice that you're breathing when your breath is natural. You notice your breathing when your breathing stops being natural. You're not aware that your heart is beating unless there's a little problem with the heart. So when everything is normal, you don't feel it. A child doesn't feel love for a parent unless there's a problem because it's so natural, it's so familiar, it's so comfortable, it doesn't draw your attention. You notice things when they're a little out of place, something is asymmetrical, something is not the way it's meant to be, then you notice it. But when everything is normal, why would you notice? Not like the comedian who says, I'm a little out of breath because it's been a long day and I've been breathing the whole time. <laughs> you don't notice that you're breathing. You don't notice that you have a profound relationship with God. Not because you're insensitive, but because it's so natural. That's what people mean when they say, I don't practice, I don't do all the rituals, but I am a Jew and I'm as Jewish as anybody else. See, this is what they're talking about. That natural um, default relationship, to use a computer term, is so natural that you don't notice it. So why haven't you thought of God for a long time? What's to think? He's my God. I'm Jewish. Well, when somebody challenges that, when somebody says, oh, you're, you're not really Jewish, are you? Because you don't come to synagogue, because you don't donate to Israel. So you're not really Jewish. Whoa. Then all of a sudden you're noticing how Jewish you really are. So 
those who are truly alone, and the lockdown, of course, makes it worse, start noticing where you're truly connected. Start noticing who really seeks your companionship. To whom do you matter the most? God created you and you matter the most to another creation? I don't think so. If God created you, then you matter the most to him. In a lesser degree, your parents gave birth to you. You matter to them more than to anybody else. But they only gave birth to you. They didn't create you. And they didn't create themselves. So if you matter to your parents, you matter even more to your creator. Take advantage. Get all the benefits that comes from that relationship. It's there. Why aren't you benefiting? It's a very dramatic story. I was in South America. And when I, I landed, they told me that there was a young couple who were waiting for me because they had suffered a tragedy and they were at wit's ends. They didn't want to talk to anybody anymore. They heard all the answers that everybody could offer and they, they just, it, nothing's working. They're bitter, they're angry, they're broken. They're despairing. I met with the couple the awful tragedy of a six-year-old daughter who died of an aneurysm while they, were, while they were not home. The man used to put on tefillin regularly. He would go to shul regularly. They kept Shabbat strictly. No more. No more tefillin. No more Shabbat. No more synagogue. About God's justice and God's judgment and hidden good. It was all it was all said already. So I knew I had to say something that was totally unexpected. Otherwise I wouldn't even have their attention. So the first thing I said was, has your daughter communicated with you yet? They were a little taken aback. The husband said yes, twice. She appeared in his dream twice. Each time she was smiling, 
as if to tell them that she's okay. I said, why did she have to come twice? To tell you the same thing twice? Souls don't do that. They don't visit unless they really have to. Once was enough. So she was trying to tell you something else. She was trying to tell you that she is happy, but that you're not letting her. She's really not happy to know that because of her, you stopped putting on tefillin. And because of her, you stopped keeping Shabbat. Essentially, your daughter is saying, don't give up on me. You're my father. You're my mother. Don't quit on me. See, here's what happens. People go into grief and they become mourners and forget to be parents. You're still a father, you're still a mother and she is still your daughter. And what you're doing affects her. What she's doing affects you. So she came and told you, I'm okay to make you feel happier. But it didn't work. So she came a second time and she said, I'm okay with you. Why are you not okay with me? Why did you stop being my parents? The man said, should I put on the tefillin now or should I wait till I get home? When your parent is in heaven and you're on earth, the same dynamic. When does a father stop being a father? Just because he's far away? When does a mother stop being a mother? You're never alone. In fact, the reason the feeling of being alone is so painful and so destructive is because it's not true. And you can't fool Mother Nature. So when you think you're alone and you're not alone, it's not going to feel right. It's not going to feel good. It's, it's, it's going to mess everything up. So speaking of truth, you're never alone. You didn't come into this world alone. You will never be in this world alone unless you're a mushroom, just sprang up out of nowhere. Now you see this kind of information, it's, it's so perfect. Doesn't matter whether I'm sincere. Does it even matter whether I understand what I'm saying? If you understand it, 
You've heard everything you need to hear. That is magnificent. I don't know you. I'm really not talking to you. I'm basically talking to myself in this camera. And yet the information is so valid, so valuable, so real. Who cares? So if you guys in <laughs> if you guys in New Guinea are listening, who cares? What's true is true. What's good is good. What's right is right. That's the beauty of the internet.